All right. Well, it is good to be with you this morning, and uh, we're going to dive right into it because I've got a lot of material to cover, and uh, if there's still folks coming in, that's fine. You go on and uh, come on in. We're a little bit uh, uneven on the right-hand side. I feel like I'm sort of tipping over on this side a little bit, but that's that's okay. Um, I have been uh, asked if, if anyone is, uh, we're getting a little, little hot there. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, <clears throat> I'll speak louder, but uh, that's, that's a little, little, little too warm for me. Uh, I've been asked uh, by Emilio to address some difficult issues. So if you think I'm just trying to like completely geek out because I'm working on a, uh, a PhD in textual criticism right now uh, in South Africa, uh, that's not why. Uh, it's all his fault, so I just want to make sure that you know who to blame uh, if, you, if you're left uh, wondering why in the world I talked about all that kind of stuff. But uh, I want to actually start off. I only put this up here. We'll, we'll get back to it later. I only put it up there because it looked pretty. Uh, it's really not where we're, where we're starting. I actually want to start here. Uh, your New Testament is changing and the vast majority, even of scholarship, doesn't know exactly why. And that is an interesting time period in which we are living. Now, why might that be? Well, let me give you an example, and then we can use that as the basis for an explanation of, uh, of what's going on. I have on the screen um, the New American Standard, the ESV, and then uh, that's the uh, Nessialan 28th edition of the Greek New Testament over on the right-hand side. And if you were preaching through uh, the little epistle of Jude, you would come to verse 5 after having rip-snorted through verses 3 and 4 because there's great stuff in there about the once for all delivered to the saints' faith and all sorts of stuff like that. And then you get to verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, if you were preaching from the New American Standard Bible. But uh, how many people have an NASB here this morning? All right, how many people have an ESV here this morning? Okay, uh, how many people have a New King James? The guy running the sound. That's a little scary. Okay. Um, <clears throat> how about a 1611 KJV? That, that's always interesting to see who's hiding the back waiting to debate me on. Uh, there we go. Okay. On, uh, on that subject. And how about I didn't mention your translation? NIV. NIV. Wow. I was going to say, don't. Oh, the NET. Okay, all right, NETs. Yeah, well, I knew that there would be only one person in the room with that anyway. So, okay, so <clears throat> if you have the ESV, it says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, you notice what the difference is. Well, there's, there's really, there, there's some translational differences between the two. Uh, I mean, although you once fully knew it in comparison, though you know all things once for all. That's, those are two different uh, interpretations of the same Greek phrase. But the primary difference is the New American Standard says, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. But the ESV has Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, most people don't spend too much time looking at little notes at the bottom of their page, but there is a little note at the bottom of the page. 
And it's interesting to look at them. The uh, NASB note says, two early manuscripts read Jesus. Okay, so there's, there's a note. Uh, it's uh, in almost every printing of the NASB. It's not in the, the, new, the new preacher's Bible. If you saw what uh, was uh, handed out to everybody at Shepherd's Conference, um, the preacher's Bible doesn't have the text notes. That's not in there. Uh, but it is in the NASB. It says, two early manuscripts read Jesus. And then there's a little note in the ESV, and it says, some manuscripts, although you fully knew it, that the Lord who once saved. So they tell you that the other reading is Lord in saying some manuscripts. Now, <clears throat> the, the note in the NASB is simply wrong, uh, to put it fundamentally. Uh, because I can show you many manuscripts that say Jesus, not just two. Uh, there are many manuscripts that say, say Jesus. The, that's what's over here on the uh, right-hand side. It looks like a bunch of scribbles to most people, but this is the textual data for, uh, for Jude 5. And uh, there's many more than just, uh, than just two. So the question that immediately rises in everyone's mind, and you've, maybe you've never looked at Jude 5, but you've probably looked at... Um, you're probably familiar with the issue of the longer ending of Mark. Mark 16, 9 through 20 uh, is a lengthy uh, set of verses that is normally put in double brackets in most modern translations. We're going to look at the other long textual variant in a moment. That's John 7, 53 through 8, 11. But almost anywhere, on, on, on almost any page, uh, when you're reading through the ESV or the NASB, uh, there's going to be a note down at the bottom of the page about a word, about a phrase. Sometimes the words are, are uh, inverted in order or a different word is used or something like that. And most Christians just sort of look at those things and, you know, if the preacher's preaching from different translation, you sort of notice some of those things. But we don't spend a whole lot of time on it, though uh, probably in the back of your mind at some point you've gone... You know, I sort of wish those weren't there. Uh, I, I sort of wish we just had, you know, one text uh, that had been just photocopied. Uh, if, if, if the Bible was written today, then you could just photocopy the originals over and over again, and, and there would never be any, any issues like this. Well, the problem is, then the Bible could not have been written until 1949, because that's when the photocopier was invented. And, well, at least we had waited till, till printing had been invented. You know, printing is, 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 is a lot more accurate. Well, sort of. Uh, up until the modern period, you always had to hand typeset. And uh, there are some famous, famous Bibles. For example, the Adulterer's Bible was a King James version that was uh, done early on. And in the typesetting, they forgot the word not in the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so it was printed as thou shalt commit adultery. And uh, so printing is still a human process where you are having to hand typeset things. And so um, the reality is that every single ancient document uh, up until printing uh, had to be hand copied. The only exception to that would be something we wouldn't really call a document. Uh, if you chiseled something in stone, uh, that was pretty permanent. It was also not mobile. <laughs> so in 
So, um, you know, stone tablets, not the easiest things to carry around uh, in doing evangelism or spreading any type of uh, lengthy message. And so uh, the Jewish people had the, the Torah scrolls. The, uh, they would have different scrolls that would contain the law or, or the major prophets and some of the minor prophets and the Psalms and so on and so forth. They had, they had different scrolls that would uh, contain that kind of, of material, but still they had to be hand copied. And most of us today don't do hand copying anymore at all. Uh, it's, it's sad. I'm so old now that uh, when I talk to groups, I can use illustrations from my youth that completely lose the millennials. So, for example, um, I'm so old that I wrote my high school and early college term papers on an IBM Selectric typewriter. And um, uh, those were wonderful machines. Um, but they, the young people who have only known how to cut and paste and so on and so forth have had it really easy in life. Uh, back in my day, you would, uh, you would have to be typing a page, and uh, not only did you have to use whiteout or correction tape to, to, make, to correct your mistakes, um, but you also, if you had to put footnotes, had to keep that in mind as you were typing. And if you lost track of that and went too far, you just pulled a piece of paper out, wad it up, throw it away, put a new piece of paper in, and start all over again. That's, that's, how, that's how you did it. And uh, young people are looking at me going, wow. And not only that, but you had to be very quiet when the dinosaurs walked by outside your, your, uh, your windows. So it was a real tough thing. You young people should really respect us old folks and what we had to go through uh, to get our education. So <clears throat> anyway, um, but we would actually have to copy... If you were quoting from a book, you actually had to somehow figure out how to get that book to stay open, which was always one of the greatest elements of education, was figuring out how to use book weights and rubber bands. And you should see some of the ways, because some books do not want to lay open easily. They want to stay closed. And so it can be really tricky to get that thing to finally stay there. And then you have to type and copy, and you're going back and forth and back and forth, between the two. And that's when you get the illustration of what can happen when you're copying from one into another. The vast majority of the early manuscripts of the New Testament were done by a scribe copying from another manuscript of the New Testament, or normally, back in the early, early, early period, just a single book, a a copy of Mark or a copy of uh, Romans or something like that. Um, later on, you would be able to have uh, manuscripts that were done in scriptoriums where a person up front would be reading the text, and you'd have four or five scribes copying uh, the text down. And that introduces different kinds of issues because the person reading can make the mistake, the person listening can misinterpret, mishear. Uh, There can be all sorts of issues that are... But you can make many more copies that way, too. So... There, there, that, that does happen in the, in the text of the New Testament, but it's not, it's not one of the major uh, mechanisms by which uh, the New Testament was copied, uh, especially because of the fact that when the New Testament was originally written, within a very short, well, from the very time in which it was written, the church was under persecution and would be under persecution from the sixth decade of the first century to the second decade of the fourth century. So, um, persecution against the church continued until what's called the peace of the church in A.D. 313. 
And the worst period of, of persecution was between about 250, 260, and 313, where it was empire-wide, and uh, many people lost their lives, and there were many thousands of manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments that were destroyed by the Romans during that, uh, that period of time. So there had to be a lot of copying going on, but it had to be done in secret. You were risking your life to uh, either copy or possess uh, the early manuscripts of, of the New Testament. And so uh, in the process of copying of any document of antiquity, and this is true of anything that was written before the New Testament, after the New Testament, it's true of the Quran, which is written 600 years after the time of Christ. There are textual variants in the handwritten manuscripts of the Quran. Just as a, It is a reality of any ancient document the textual variants are going to exist. Many people, many Christians, would rather that God had simply maybe, you know, sort of like in an uh, in Indiana Jones movie, uh, that there was just one cave someplace with the 700-year-old monk who never dies, um, uh, even of boredom, um, is, is there uh, who uh, can, you know, protects the one true copy. And if you want to, if you want to have the, the real reading, then you have to find that 700-year-old monk uh, that's up there doing his thing. Uh, here's the problem. That may sound great. But unless you're there every day with that 700-year-old monk, you've got to trust that he hasn't been playing around with that text in the process. And so when people say, I wish there was just the one copy, that way there would be no textual variance, um, that's actually a very dangerous position to take. When you really think through what you'd like to have, what you want to have is a text that is widely copied, by many different kinds of people in many different places. That will result in scribal errors, but it will also give you the greatest confidence that you can reconstruct the original text without anyone editing it. And that's the big accusation today, is that, well, you know, Shirley MacLaine was an actress of back in even my, preceding my generation, and uh, she sort of went loopy back in the 1980s, went off into the New Age movement, and she was running around for a long time uh, telling people that reincarnation used to be in the Bible, uh, but they, they took it out at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now, you hear somebody say something like that, and you might go, oh, yeah, sure. But in the back of your mind, you're going, I don't know anything about the Council of Constantinople in 381. I don't know what they were doing. I I don't know if they could or couldn't do that. Well, they couldn't have. Uh, we have manuscripts of the New Testament uh, that predate that uh, time period. So if something had been changed, the Council of uh, Constantinople, we would all know about that. Uh, but it simply didn't happen. That's not what the council was about. But people run around making accusations that our, our Muslim friends say that all the stuff about the deity of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection, all that stuff, was, uh, was, is a corruption of the original text. Um, that's the normal accusation. And the fact of the matter is, when you have a freely transmitted text, that is, you walk into a church, well, let me show you one. Let, let me show you an example of this, uh, and then I'll come back to this, uh, just as, because this sort of fits with my, uh, my example here. Um, this is P72. It's from uh, around 175 to 200. Uh, this is the uh, end of 1 Peter and the beginning of 2 Peter. 
it's actually a very readable text. Um, if you if you can read any Greek, if you look up the top of the on the right hand side, you see Petru Epistole Bay. Now you might go, it just looks like one long word. Uh, that's because for the first nine hundred years in the history of the transmission of the text of the New Testament, this is how manuscripts were written. All capital letters, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation. So if you can imagine what that looks like, just long lines of capital letters, no spaces between words, and almost no punctuation at all. Um, So most people who have uh, studied New Testament Greek in seminary uh, cannot read the early papyri manuscripts because it, it just doesn't look like what you're used to. We've cleaned it up a lot since then, and it makes it a whole lot easier to deal with. Um, so anyway, uh, if you look at this uh, manuscript, now whoever wrote this was a, a, obviously a literate person. Uh, they, they had, this isn't the first thing they ever copied. Uh, but you'll also notice that the, the handwriting isn't really perfect and the lines aren't exactly straight. And uh, it's not like somebody was trying to create some type of literary masterpiece or something. Uh, this, was, this was meant to be functional. It was meant to be something that you could read, uh, but not overly fancy. And so it's possible that what happened here is you've got a person who uh, visits another local fellowship of believers and someone brings out Second uh, uh, Peter to read, and they go, hey, I've never heard this before. What is this? Well, these are Peter's writings. We don't have that in my fellowship. Could, could I make a copy of that? And they would say, sure. They didn't say, excuse me, we need to see your copyist card, please, uh, that you obtained from the proper authorities to be able to make a copy of any book of the New Testament. That didn't happen. Uh, they allowed the free transmission of the text. And that means that the text explodes across the Roman Empire very, very quickly, goes to all sorts of different places. Um, It makes it impossible for us, for example, to create a family tree of the manuscripts that we have today because they just went all over the place. It would be far too complex, and the vast majority of those manuscripts have long disappeared. I mean, you know, people who, who pick on, like, for example, this fragment here from the uh, book of Revelation, um, that's all that's left of that page. That's about where each of those fragments would have been in relationship to another fragment. Uh, but everything else, the white, is gone. It's, it's been destroyed. And you might say, wow, that's, that's in pretty bad shape. And I always like to go, you want to pick on the papyri for the shape they're in? What are you going to look like 1,800 years from now? I can guarantee you're not going to look as good as that papyri. Uh, you're going to look. You're going to be gone. You're going to be dust. It's it's really amazing uh, that we have almost any of these after that amount of time. Just think of the wars and the fires and the bugs and the floods and and uh, everything else uh, that these um, little little sheets of papyri have survived with their scribbles on it. It's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, so the the point being that the free transmission of that text which we have in the New Testament, means that we have manuscripts from all sorts of different people in all sorts of different places. Do they contain textual variants? Yes, the number of variants seems very, very large until you think about what we're actually talking about. Most would estimate that as far as 
even the most minor variant, a difference in spelling, uh, whether you have the word the, or, and one of the biggest variants is whether you include what's called the movable new, which is the, the same thing as we have in English, uh, where you're supposed to say an apple uh, instead of a apple. Uh, that, that pronunciation easing n uh, exists in Greek too, but the scribes had a lot of problems with it. There's probably about 400,000 variants um, when you count them all up in that way. But variants that actually impact the meaning of the text, like the one we saw in Jude 5, uh, there'd probably be about 1,500 of those, grand total. That's over the entirety of the New Testament, over a period of 1,500 years of hand copying. Um, that's, that's, barely, that's really uh, significantly less. It's about three-quarters of one percent. Uh, so when it, when it comes to uh, knowing what the original was with absolute certainty, we're looking at 99%. And then much of the rest of it is difficult to translate into English. Uh, in other words, um, the vast majority of the variants do not impact the actual meaning. Uh, there's a, a very specific number, not, not a super small number, but there's a significant number that we do have to study, as I will point out to you here. So uh, that gives you some idea. It is, it is, there is no other work of antiquity. In fact, let me, let me see if I can play this for you. I think I have my quote down here. Uh, where'd it go? Did I make it disappear? I'm supposed to have, uh, ah, there it is. Uh, let me see if this is going to work, make sure my volume's up. I'll just, pu- I'll just put my microphone down next to the speaker. Uh, this is from a debate that I did with Bart Ehrman, who is the leading English-speaking uh, critic of the New Testament in the world today. Uh, this is in 2009. I was, that was before I got back on bike uh, really heavily, as you can see. Um, but... Uh, uh, listen, to, listen to what I got him to say uh, in this, this particular exchange. Well, that's nice. Um, why am I... Oh, I know why. Since I'm using Apple TV... I'm sorry, since I'm using Apple TV, it's sending the sound, and you probably aren't set up to receive the sound... And that's why it is not doing anything. So I'm going to change the output to internal speakers. And then it will probably work. Let's find out. On the Unbelievable Radio Program in London, you discussed the length of time that exists between the writing of Paul's letter to the Galatians and the first extant copy, that being 150 years. Uh, You describe this time period as enormous. That's a quote. Could you tell us what term you would use to describe the time period between, say, the original writings of Suetonius or Tacitus or Pliny and their first extant manuscript copies? Very enormous. Sorry, ginormous would be a good one? Ginormous. Ginormous, okay. Uh, I mean, ginormous doesn't cover it. Uh, The New (laughs) Testament, we have much earlier uh, attestation than for any other book from antiquity. Did you catch that last sentence? For the New Testament, we have much earlier attestation than for any other work of antiquity. And he's the leading critic in the English-speaking world of the New Testament, and yet he admits that when it comes to the time period between the original writing and our first manuscripts, 
no other work of antiquity comes even close. And in fact, I think Dr. Ehrman would admit that not only do we have the earliest attestation, we have the widest attestation, the most number of manuscripts, and the best attestation, as in the quality of the manuscripts. I think he'd have to admit that, the, that all three of those statements are, are true, though they're not overly helpful to his particular, his particular perspective. So uh, with that said, uh, when we come back here to Jude 5 with a little bit of background, if I, am, I, I believe I am correct in this. When the ESV first came out, Jude 5 said, the Lord. And now it says, Jesus. Why? Well, first of all, it's not like we just discovered some manuscripts that said Jesus. I have my dad's uh, Nessialand, I think, 23rd edition that he had back in the 1950s when he was a student uh, under Kenneth Wiest at Moody Bible Institute. And you can open that up, and there's the manuscripts that say Jesus. There's the manuscripts that say Lord. It's a very, very complicated uh, textual variant. The reason that the ESV, and I think the new NIV, (coughs) there's so many new NIVs, it's hard to keep track of them all, but um, say Jesus, and I have a feeling that if they ever get around to getting this next edition of the NASB out, I have a feeling it will probably adopt Jesus as well, is due to something that the vast majority of New Testament scholars have yet to even hear about, and it's called CBGM. CBGM, which means Coherence-Based Genealogical Method. I'm not going to bore you to tears this morning by attempting to explain to you this evening, this afternoon, whenever it is. I've been traveling a lot, so I don't know what time of the day it is. Uh, I'm staying with Emilio, so I really don't know what time of the day it is. Uh, Let's just say that that Franklin's uh, saying, early to bed, early to rise, makes men healthy, wealthy, and wise, is not known in the Ramos household. So uh, anyway... Um, I'm trying, you know, I, 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 invited, uh, I invited the brother to go with me on, on a little run that I did this morning. Um, it's just 10K, but uh, just a little run that we did this morning, and uh, he just stayed in bed. So, uh, you know, it must be scary, however, to wake up early in the morning, and I'm, I'm leaning over, you want to go for a run? <laughs> that would be, be cool tomorrow morning, don't you think? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, right before sunrise in the dark to see this face right over you? Want to go for a run? <laughs> see, I've now planted that. I don't even have to do it now. He's going to wake up in a cold sweat in the morning and uh, not be able to get back to sleep, and that's going to be it. So that's the fun part. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, CBGM. Uh, I'm not going to bore you to death. Um, but what I will tell you is this. Uh, this is a revolution in the study of the original text of the New Testament. Um, It so far has been done in the general epistles, Jude is one of them, and the book of Acts. Um, The resultant book, a set of books on Acts, four volumes, 310 bucks. Uh, I have to get that kind of stuff. Um, And the next out is John and Mark. And so it's going to take another decade and a half to have it all out. Uh, But what they're doing is they're finally allowing computers to do what we knew they would always end up doing for us anyways, which is computers can handle significantly more data than the human mind can. 
And so computers can see relationships between thousands of manuscripts and all the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of readings that we cannot see. We can't see the patterns that the computer can, can analyze in that fashion. And so that's what's being done. And what, the, what they're looking for is coherence. So what happened is between the Nestle and 27th edition, which said Lord, and the Nestle and 28th edition, which says Jesus. Now, again, these are critical texts. So all the readings are there. But we're talking about the text that's actually put, printed as the main text. The reason they changed that is they analyzed the manuscripts that say Jesus and the manuscripts that say Lord, and they discovered something. Fundamentally, very simply, there is greater coherence amongst the manuscripts that say Jesus than there is amongst the manuscripts that say Lord. In other words, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, a manuscript that says Jesus has as its next up line, as far as its text is concerned, another manuscript that says Jesus. But many times, over in the Lord's side, you'd have a reading that says Lord, and yet the next closest relative it had said Jesus. So the idea is, if there is not coherence, then a a scribe who's writing this down would find it strange to say Jesus. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Bruce Metzger's textual commentary, written way back in a long, long time ago. And, and notice what he said at this, at this point. He said, despite the weighty attestation supporting Jesus, a majority of the committee was of the opinion that the reading was difficult to the point of impossibility and explained its origin in terms of transcriptional oversight. Uh, it was also observed that nowhere else does the author employ Jesus alone, but always Christ Jesus, etc., etc. So notice it says, it, just, it seemed to the committee to be impossible. Well, what changed was the recognition that because a scribe would find it strange to have Jesus there in those manuscripts where they were copying, their closest relative said Jesus, there were a number of places where it went to Lord because that would be the more natural thing to write. And so that didn't happen over here. So that one observation from the manuscripts, which has never been available uh, up until just a few years ago, uh, is what caused the editors of the Nestle and 28th to change it to Jesus. Now, there, there were about 38 changes in all of the general epistles, the vast majority of which, I mean, this is probably the, the one that's, that has the most meaning to it, uh, the vast majority of which you would not even notice. There were about 50 in the book of Acts, again, the vast majority of which not really impacting translation, but there are, you know, there are a couple. Um, obviously, when we get to the Gospels, um, John and, and Mark, that's when you're going to start hearing more about this because once there is a, a, uh, a reading difference in, uh, in those, that's when it's going to become really well known. But uh, again, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was just at a, uh, at a major seminary uh, teaching last week, uh, and I talked to a bunch of people. Uh, who do New Testament, not a one of them, but ever heard of CBGM. So it is um, my, my, um, my current dissertation work is using this baby, uh, P45, um, to analyze CBGM backwards. CBGM works going one direction, and I'm saying let's try to stick it in history and see if putting in a particular historical period 
impacts the outcome, uh, which no one's done yet. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Prayers appreciated since I'm not getting much done while traveling. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's, that's what I'm doing, and uh, hence my, my interest in, uh, in that particular uh, subject. And that's my, my P45 there. I call it mine. I do not own it. It's in uh, Dublin, but uh, that's, that's okay. Uh, okay. Got about 25 minutes left? Okay. Um, Let's look at before before we look at the at these pirate. I do I do want to look at one other uh, variant that I think is important. Uh, I had mentioned to you the longer ending of Mark. There there are two major textual variants in the New Testament. When I say major, uh, accounting for multiple verses, and so you just need to know the two of them. Once you know the two that are there, and why they are there, and so on and so forth, there's nothing else for anybody to surprise you with. You know, Bart Ehrman loves to point these out. I already mentioned the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, there's very early evidence for it, but the reason I don't think it's original is because there are three other endings. Uh, there's the no ending, there's a medium ending, and then there's a medium plus ending. Um, and I don't think that there would have been a reason uh, for those other endings if the longer ending of Mark had always been there. Uh, besides that, there's a lot of vocabulary issues and other issues in, in longer ending of Mark that I, I think are highly problematic. The other is everybody's favorite, as Dan Wallace says, it's his favorite story about Jesus that isn't in the Bible, uh, but is in most Bibles, and that's John 7:53 through 8:11, the woman taken in adultery. And so um, this story about the woman is taken in adultery, and Jesus kneels down on the ground and writes in the sand, and everybody walks away, and then uh, you know. It, it ends up in every Jesus movie, even when it doesn't have anything to do with the Jesus movie. Uh, Mel Gibson stuck it in there as a flashback because he just had to, but it didn't have anything to do with what was actually going on. And that's, that's just it's because it's everybody's favorite story. They love it. I'm sorry if I'm ruining your day today by saying, yeah, but John did not write it. But the important thing is um, I want to know what John wrote not what somebody thought John should have written or a story that was really popular and eventually ended up in the text. And on this one, not only does the, the context flow perfectly from 752 to 812, just continues right on. This is an interruption to that context. But more importantly than that, what we need to understand is the first manuscript that contains John 753 through 811 uh, if you're interested, it's right there, Codex D. Uh, Codex uh, Beze Cantabrigiensis is the living Bible of the early church. It is the most peculiar, um, edited, uh, almost paraphrased, storybook-type uh, manuscript we've ever found. It's, it's a weirdo. Uh, in fact, it was given to Calvin's successor at Geneva, uh, Beza, and when he donated it uh, to uh, Cambridge, um, he included a note that said, this is such a strange manuscript that it is far better to store it than to read it. Uh, so he didn't have much, much uh, uh, didn't put much weight on it. And when it's alone by itself, you shouldn't put any weight on it at all. Uh, but people still like it. But that's the first, that's the first um, manuscript to contain it. And that's from uh, the early 400s. So 5th century is the first time that we have this. We have all sorts of copies of the Gospel of John uh, prior to this, and none of them contain it. 
So nearly the first half millennium of the church goes by before we have any evidence whatsoever of this story being in the Gospel of John. But what's even more important is that uh, it's found here in a number of manuscripts. However, uh, it's also found in one manuscript uh, at another point in John 8. And then in, uh, well, actually, there's, there's a bunch of variants even within the story itself, which is always a telltale sign of, of, a, of a problem. But you will also find in, for example, Family 13, uh, it's found, right, well, it's after John 7.36 in Manuscript 2.25. It is after Luke 21.38 in Family 13. And then we've also got after John 21, 25 elsewhere. So in other words, it not only moves around in John, it's even found in Luke. This is clearly a story looking for a place to land. Uh, and there's just nothing else like it in all the New Testament. You, you do not have other passages that bounce around, uh, either within a book or even between books. It is absolutely unique along those lines. And it is the, uh, as Metzger says, the evidence of the non-Yohanine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. And, and it is uh, overwhelming. Uh, but those are the only two major variants of multiple verses uh, that, that we have. There just simply isn't anything else. And we keep finding earlier and earlier texts. You may have heard about the finding of, of a fragment of Mark that uh, hit the news recently. Um, that, uh, again, is just, you know, there's, it's just basically what we already knew from Mark chapter 1. It wasn't uh, anything, uh, you know, earth-shaking as long as, those, as that goes. We keep finding these early papyri, and they read as the later uh, manuscripts did as well. Now, when you see those little, those little notes, um, you should be thankful for that information. We live in a day where we have more information about the, the New Testament than any other generation before us. Uh, the King James translators included hundreds of textual notes originally in their translation. They are rarely printed today, unfortunately, um, but they did. They were familiar with textual variants back then, but the vast majority of the manuscripts that we have cataloged today were not available to the King James translators. In fact, the King James translators did not use manuscripts. They used only printed editions of the Greek New Testament. So they only used the five editions that Erasmus had produced, um, the uh, edition of Stephanus, and the edition of Beza. They used uh, about seven editions. And so uh, they were, that, that was actually secondary work. Now, they did do some, you know, they were great scholars, and they did make reference to certain variants, but it was, that was not their primary task. Their primary task was to produce an English translation. So when you see those little notes... Um, it, it's unfortunate, you know, I hope they fix the one uh, on, uh, on, on Jude 5 in the NASB where it says only two manuscripts, and there's many, many, many more. I don't know where that came from. Uh, so, so it's even good to compare the notes just to make sure you're getting accurate information. But I always like to show, in a, we only got a few minutes to do it, some of these manuscripts that they're referring to. And so uh, here is, is P52, and most scholars believe P52 is the earliest uh, fragment of the New Testament we, we can, that we have. This is what it would have looked like uh, initially as the text would have wrapped around where it is. You can see it's up at the top of a, of a page. And uh, it contains John 18, 31 through uh, 
34 and 1837-38 because it's written on both sides. And uh, it's when you, when you date a papyrus, you do so on the basis of the handwriting and a comparison with other papyri that have been found. We've found all sorts of papyri from this time period. Most of it is secular, and hence you'll find papyri that are dated. Uh, there are sales receipts and business transactions and contracts and things like that. And we can tell when they were written and hence, we can identify changes in handwriting styles because you would frequently have scri- scribal schools that would produce both biblical manuscripts as well as secular documents and things like that. So the more similar they are to one another, then the, then the, the closer they are in date. And so you give a date range, about 25 years on each side. And so uh, P52 is dated to around 125. So it's between 100 and 150. Is the, is the date range that this would, be, this would be placed in. I normally spend a whole lot more time talking about P52, but I just want to give you an idea of what some of these manuscripts look like. Um, I am a geek. This is from my, uh, the debate we saw just a moment ago. Uh, you'll notice the tie that I'm wearing is P52. Uh, I actually made a P52 tie, uh, and that's me giving Bart Ehrman his own P52 tie. Now, I don't know what he did with it. He may have burned it. Uh, he may wear it once a year to mock fundamentalists or something. I have no earthly idea, but I did give him uh, the P52 uh, tie there. Not the one I was wearing. It was a, it was a different one. So I already showed you this one, but uh, what I want to do real quick is, look, Emilio is getting the day off, right? I mean, I'm preaching, so he's got the day off. And so I know that you want to keep him sharp and fresh And so I want to show you something here. And if you have any questions about what I show you here, Emilio says he wants to answer them for you. And in fact, if if you only come up with that question at 2 or 3 this this morning, he would like you to text it to him so that he can have the opportunity of of talking with you about this. Okay, so he doesn't remember telling me that. But but, uh, this is P115. It is one of only two papyri manuscripts we have from the book of Revelation. And we have the fewest manuscripts of Revelation. The reason being it fought for inclusion in the canon for a long time. And so it's, it, the history of its transmission is very different than any of the rest of the New Testament. This is from Revelation chapter 13. And here is a blow up of one portion of that. And in Revelation chapter 13, we have the number of the beast. I think it's verse 18, as I recall. The number of the beast. And everybody knows the number of the beast. Uh, there's probably some, some guy on a Harley driving by outside. We could stop him and go, what's the number of the beast? And he'd pull up his, up his shirt and show you his shoulder, 666, you know, and everybody knows what the number of the beast is. Well, here's, here's the problem. Uh, in both the earliest papyri manuscripts of Revelation, it's not 666. It's 616. 616. Um, now, uh, I'll help Emilio out a little bit here. Uh, Dan Wallace, I think, has a good idea about this one. And uh, that is, he says that 666 is the number of the beast, but 616 is the number of the neighbor of the beast. So it's just right... Uh, 
But if your eschatology just got messed up uh, by realizing that there might be a difference in the number, as I said, Emilio has all the answers for you on the subject of eschatology. Um, I already showed you P72. I just wanted to point. I'm not sure if you can really see it uh, real well, but if you... Uh, notice there are a number of lines over words, like the third line down, you'll see these little short lines. Uh, there's a number of them throughout the text. Those are called the nomina sacra. We don't know why, but uh, the early Christian manuscripts are all marked off by the use of the nomina sacra. The early Christians abbreviated the divine names, God, Lord, Jesus, Son, Spirit, and they would make either a two- or three-letter uh, abbreviation with a line over top. We don't know why. There's lots of speculation. Entire uh, uh, articles have been written speculating about the Nomen of Sacred, but it's just the reality of the manuscripts. And uh, I saw this manuscript uh, in 1993. It was on display in Denver, Colorado during World Youth Day and um, uh, had a grand... This was the the page that I actually saw. had a grand time translating it and uh, and everything else. And the rest of the exhibit was completely boring after seeing this, but it was, uh, it was wonderful. So there's P72. Our earliest manuscript of 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude is P72. And there, by the way, woo, isn't that nice? Uh, that is a Granville Sharp construction in 2nd Peter 1.1, 1, 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, so if you have any friends that still think that the Da Vinci Code had anything to do with reality, uh, where allegedly Constantine made up the deity of Christ at 325. This is a manuscript from about 175 that clearly teaches the deity of Christ. So much for the Da Vinci Code. It was a work of fiction, and it remains a work of fiction. Uh, then we have uh, P75. This is an excellently uh, translated uh, Gospels manuscript, one of the most uh, accurate Gospels manuscripts we have. Uh, and it's because the scribe did it letter by letter. Didn't do it word by word or phrase by phrase. He copied letter by letter, and he was good at it. And so he's very, very accurate, and it's extremely useful. This is the end of Luke and the beginning of John uh, from P75, also around 175-200. Contemporaneous is P66. Uh, I like this because you can see how the the book itself actually looks. Most of these papyri have been separated into their individual pages, and so you can't see sort of how the book has aged over time. Uh, but you can sort of see how this one did. This is also the beginning of John. And uh, this scribe wasn't as careful as P75 was. He was a little bit more concerned about how pretty he made the letters uh, than uh, P75 was and sometimes missed the point uh, as in, in the process. Sort of like when I was trying to follow Emilio here today and he disappeared. <laughs> just, just he turned. I kept on going straight. I had my mind to someplace else. But um, uh, that happened to the scribe of P66 uh, as, as well. And uh, this also, uh, there's John 1.1, 1, 1, there's Kai Theos Ein Halagos, if you want to talk with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, uh, and that particular phrase, there it is in P66. I uh, showed you P45, this is my baby. Um, uh, P45 is absolutely unique because it's the only uh, manuscript we have that contains Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. It doesn't contain all of it, obviously. This is actually the section from John. It's one of the, one of the fullest portions uh, of, of the text, best preserved uh, of the text from John chapters 10 and 11. Uh, most of the rest of it is more fragmentary than this. But um, uh, P45 is what I'm using to analyze CBGM and uh, things like that. So uh, know a lot about that particular manuscript because I've spent so much time with it already. Uh, then we have P46. Now, 
you're going to help me out with something here. Still got 10 minutes, so I can do this. Uh, you're, you need to help me out with something here. Uh, down through the years, uh, I have uh, asked people about this. And I may have asked you guys this sometime in years past, and thankfully no one can remember what I said after a couple of years, so it's good. I can ask you again, and you won't. You won't. But uh, P46 is the earliest collection we have here. You can blow this up here. Pros Philippasius to the Philippians. This is the earliest collection we have of Paul's epistles. And so the big question that everyone always has is, well, did Paul write Hebrews? Um, now, if you have a King James, it says the epistle of Paul, so it's right there. It's pretty much decided for you, but the manuscripts don't say that. And so um, what I do is I like to ask audiences, do you think that, P4, that P46 contains Hebrews or doesn't contain Hebrews? Now, normally what happens is about two-thirds of the audience will go ahead and participate by putting up their hands. And then one-third of you sit there like this. You can't make me answer. I'm not going to guess. You might mock me if I do. What if I'm wrong? You, you take a picture of me, put it on Facebook. I'm not going to do it. We know how mean you are. You know, this type of thing. It's like, no, I, I don't do that kind of thing. But, but a lot of people just sit there. I'm not, I'm not gonna. That's America. I was just in Lusaka, Zambia a few weeks ago, and I was showing these slides. And I did this, and I discovered something about the culture of Zambia. I went, so how many of you think it contains Hebrews? Nobody puts a hand up. How many think it doesn't contain Hebrews? Nobody puts a hand up. <laughs> it's just like, we do not participate in things like that. Uh, you can keep talking to us. We're, we're enjoying the presentation, but we will not interact with you in any way, shape, or form. And uh, even at the African Christian University, I, it was very difficult to get the students to interact at all. And there was this one student that would. He'd laugh at my jokes and everything. And then somebody pointed out, he's from South Africa. <laughs> so, so it was, yeah, if, if, you feed, if you feed back off of the audience, forget about it in, uh, in Zambia. Just, just go with it. Enjoy it. The saints are enjoying it. They're just not going to let you know about it in any way, shape, or form. So uh, with that said, uh, let me uh, find out how Zambian you all are uh, on this, this afternoon. Uh, so how many of you think uh, P46 contains Hebrews? How many of you think it doesn't contain Hebrews? And how many of you sat there and refused to vote? Uh-huh, see, see? I don't understand that. Just take a walk on the wild side, man. I mean, it's just not. It's right after Romans. So it is contained uh, right after Romans, so... What does that mean? It means that someone around the year 200 thought that Paul wrote, uh, wrote Hebrews. Uh, here's a little uh, manuscript that, uh, uh, from Acts P91 that I got to see at Macquarie State University in Sydney uh, a few years ago, uh, which is uh, interesting. And then, real quickly, um, I have just a few minutes left. Once the peace of the church takes place, then you have the ability to make uh, significantly uh, better quality manuscripts. And so here is Codex Sinaiticus from around 325 to 350. Uh, this is pretty much what it looked like when I saw it in the British Library, uh, British Museum, uh, British Museum uh, in 2005. That doesn't tell you a whole lot about it. Here is uh, a picture of it uh, and the text. This is not printed. That's handwritten. Uh, and it is uh, an incredible uh, production. Not only that, it uh, contains both the Old and New Testaments. 
So it, when it was first discovered, it was not only the earliest New Testament manuscript we had because we hadn't found the papyri yet, uh, but it certainly ended up uh, at that point being the oldest Old Testament we had, except in Greek. So it was the earliest example of the Greek uh, Septuagint. You can see all of Codex Sinaiticus at codexsinaiticus.org. Uh, you can choose raking light or straight on light, and it has transcriptions, and it's a really fairly impressive uh, website, though I've noticed recently they're not keeping it up, and so as your browser technology changes, some of the features aren't working as well as they used to because they're not updating the coding on their end, uh, which is a bit of a pain, but uh, it's, it's still out there to take a look at it. Uh, and then contemporaneous that is Codex Vaticanus, which is in the Vatican Library, now also fully available online in high-quality imaging. A lot of this stuff, you've got the, the excellent uh, organization here in the Dallas area, CSNTM, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Uh, I support them regularly. Um, they are going around the world digitizing these manuscripts. And eventually, eventually, uh, we'll have the vast majority of these sitting on our, on our, our iPhones, on our digital devices. Uh, I, are, I have all of P45 on mine. Uh, and I've got Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, too. So... Uh, this stuff is becoming available. One more really quickly, Codex Alexandrinus. I've even made a tie out of this one because it's so pretty. I mean, that's a really nice color tie. Um, but uh, I have a John 14 tie that I've made out of Codex Alexandrinus. So these are just some of the manuscripts that are out there that are the ones that are being noted uh, there in, uh, in, your, in your New Testament. Uh, it's important, I think, to know the reality of the background, and if you're going to remember anything today, hopefully it's not just my stories about the papyri, but is to remember the difference between a free and controlled transmission of a text. Because what the skeptics do is they point out to us what we should know, we should have been paying attention to the footnotes, that, well, there, there, are, there are scribal errors. The reason the scribal errors exist is because of the free transmission of the text. Those scribal errors are the very reason we can, with great confidence, say, no, Deity of Christ, resurrection, was all a part of the original New Testament. It hasn't been inserted. It hasn't been changed. Uh, you, can, you can pick on how we spell uh, Barabbas' name, uh, or you can uh, talk about a, a story in John 7 that isn't found for the first 400 years in the New Testament manuscripts if you want. We know all about that stuff. The reality is even Bart Ehrman has to admit, yeah, we, we know what the New Testament was about. In fact, I listened to him on an atheist podcast once. And he was talking about various textual variants, and there are some difficult textual variants. And he likes to talk about the angry Jesus in, in Mark or, or Jesus dying apart from God in Hebrews 2 and a few interesting variants like that. Uh, he was talking about those things, but the atheist goes, so, so Dr. Ehrman, in light of all this, what do you think the New Testament was originally about? And you can tell Ehrman's sort of like, it was about Jesus as the Son of God coming and dying on the cross and rising again the third day? I th he can't be so naive as to not realize that a lot of his popularity is due to people using his stuff to promote a radical skepticism as if the New Testament was originally about space gods or something like that. Um, but he is a scholar, and so he recognizes uh, that the amount of the text we're talking about is absolutely minuscule and that the message of the New Testament is not impacted. I mean, he has specifically said in his printed work, there is no cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith that is impacted uh, by how you decide textual variants. He recognizes that. 
uh, but his, the people who use him do not, and unfortunately teach in all of our universities and local colleges and everything else. So when you send your young people there, this is the stuff they get hit with. And so it's important for us to talk about these things in the context of faith rather than having our young people get hit with this kind of thing in the context of unbelief, and we haven't actually prepared them for it. So this is just a very, very brief little introduction. Uh, hopefully it is at least of some interest uh, to you. Um, there's a whole lot more on this. I've got the debate with Bart Ehrman online. I've, my book on the King James Only controversy is about this. Um, related issues like the canon of Scripture. Uh, some of you may have seen the um, uh, discussion I had with Dr. Michael Kruger at G3 this year on the formation of the canon and uh, issues related to that. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff online, just like there's a lot of garbage stuff online, too. But there's a lot of good stuff available, too. So uh, hopefully that was uh, helpful to you. I appreciate your, uh, your interest. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the, the means by which you preserved it for us over so long a period of time, at the same time allowing the gospel to go forth into all the world. We ask that you would make us good students of your word that we would be able to use it in the proclamation of the gospel, that you would honor that even in this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.